Good morning, Trinity. My name is Chris McDaniel, the senior pastor here at Trinity Anglican in Atlanta, Georgia, and we're glad that you've chosen to join us for our online Sunday service here on the second Sunday in the Easter season. One quick update before we get into the word today in John 20. If you would like to receive critical news and updates from us as a church regarding programming content, uh, visit westside.atltrinity.org. Scroll about halfway down, click on the button, get updates. Give us your email address and we promise to give you critical information, content, uh, pastoral updates without overloading and bombarding your in email inbox. But if you just want to worship with us, we're super glad to have you here today. Just listen on, disregard the, the website. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 20. I'm going to read 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the word of God. Uh, God, that the scriptures are able to give us comfort as we seek to follow you. And we pray that you would do just that for us today here in this Easter season, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So today, uh, the second Sunday in Easter is typically known and classically known as Low Sunday. And it's called Low Sunday, not just because church attendance goes down the Sunday after Easter, which is also somewhat true, uh, but it's called Low Sunday because uh, we sit with doubt here at the very beginning of resurrection season. And one would think that if Christians were going to uh, sell propaganda, we would gloss over doubt. And yet here it is right here, just early on in the Christian story, the friends of Jesus were wrestling with doubt. And so what Christians have done historically is to make room for doubt, even in the midst of a season of rejoicing, uh, even in the midst of a season where we're focusing on life, uh, there are these seeds of doubt that come in. And I think right now, maybe more than at any other time, I deeply resonate with the beauty and the honesty and the reality of Low Sunday. Because we're all feeling feelings of doubt and fatigue. We're all thinking this should be a season historically of triumphalism where we're up here and yet maybe we feel like we're down here. 
And I would say to you that not only is that okay, I think being honest is the very best place, the most real place that we can be. And God meets his people. He meets people like me and like you when we're being real and when we're being honest. And I think that Thomas actually gives us tracks to run on. I think our brother Thomas actually gives us a way to be authentically Christian during a season of disorientation. So we're just going to sit with him and try to learn from him, hear from him. The first movement in this passage is that Jesus appears to his friends. And I love it because the text that we just read actually picks up on the evening of Easter and then spans all the way through a week out. And on the evening of the resurrection, that very first Easter Sunday, Jesus finds his friends. Now his friends are are hiding. They're uh, living behind locked doors in an undisclosed place because they're afraid. They're afraid that whatever had happened to Jesus is now gonna happen to them. So in that fear, they erect barriers. They lock doors and they hide away. And I've been thinking a lot about this because when we face seasons of disorientation and fear, it is our nature as humans to lock the door. It's our nature as humans to uh, put barriers between us and trouble. But here's the problem with barriers, y'all. Barriers don't discriminate. Walls keep things out, good things and bad things. And some of us, maybe when we feel afraid, maybe now in a season like the one we're in, have erected some barriers But the problem with barriers is that barriers not only protect, but they tend to isolate us. They tend to cut us off from the kind of connection and the kind of contact that we all desperately need. And so the disciples in their fear put barriers up, but Jesus is able to bypass their walls. And I wanna say this to you because I feel like the Lord is saying it to me. Jesus is able to bypass the walls that I put up the places where I actually try to create spaces to protect myself, God in his wisdom is able to come through those things. And so Jesus actually bypasses the barriers. And when he bypasses barriers, a couple of things happen. And this leads us to the second movement in our passage for today. Jesus actually appears to his friends and he speaks peace and he gives them power, peace and power, the peace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the fact that when Jesus finds his friends on that Easter evening, he doesn't shame them for hiding. He doesn't say, guys, why don't you get it? Why didn't you actually um, have a plan for hope right now? He finds them in a hidden place, in a fearful place. And the first thing that he does is he actually speaks peace to them. He says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. He, pe- he brings peace into their hearts. And then he says to them, ultimately, this peace is going to re-engage you. You're going to be sent again. You're going to be useful again. And I think the disciples needed to hear this because they were probably not feeling terribly useful, kind of like probably the way many of us feel right now. We we wish that we were on our game, but we're not really feeling very useful, uh, very alert, very dialed in to um, whatever should be happening next and how we should respond to it. And Jesus knows this about us. He knows how we respond to seasons of disorientation. And his first word is a word of peace, but he doesn't leave it there. The text tells us he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And that idea of breath and wind is a really common theme with regard to the work of the Spirit in the Bible. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament in Ezekiel, that that famous story of the Valley of Dry Bones, when the bones are animated or brought back up to stand but still dead, the Spirit of God breathes breath into the bones. There's an old word in the Hebrew language for spirit, which means breath. And what it means there is that God's breath is able to animate and bring life to things that were once dead. Even when you look at Acts 2, 
uh, earlier on the passage we read just before that passage a few minutes ago we see that the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit first comes in the upper room on the day of Pentecost that the wind from heaven breathed through the room the idea here is that the breath of God the Holy Spirit breathes life into things that are dead and many of us right now probably feel a little bit dead on the inside we feel like hope has died, confidence has died, um, our freedom to, to move about and connect with one another. All of these things are terribly diminished. And Jesus, when he finds his friends in such a diminished state, one not unlike what you're probably feeling, he says, peace be with you. And then he breathes life. The Holy Spirit has come to bring life to the places where we feel dead, where we feel sidelined. And what happens on this moment of the evening of the resurrection with the first friends of Jesus is they experience the power of Easter all over again. What God is doing now comes to them. And there's a sense of life filling their lungs. And I believe the Lord wants to do the very same thing for you and me, even as we navigate this remarkably uncertain season. But that leads me to the third thing we have to sit with here. Not everybody was there that night. Poor Thomas was not present when Jesus appeared to the disciples. I mean, y'all, what a terrible time for Thomas to be out getting milk for his friends or whatever it is that he was doing. Um, they're all there hiding, discouraged. And then Thomas misses the very good thing that Jesus came to do. And so when Thomas comes in with the groceries or whatever it is he was doing and, and, and he says, hey guys, so what's up? What's new? They look at him and they say, we've seen the Lord. Like Jesus turned up, Thomas, when you were gone. And Thomas doubts. The text tells us that he doesn't believe them, and I can hardly bring it, blame him. He, he can't bring himself to believe something that he himself wasn't able to experience. And many of us probably feel this way. I know that there have been tinges of this for me during this Easter season. It's like I see people on Instagram acting all joyful, and I think, well, I don't feel as joyful as I wish I felt. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not experiencing what you're experiencing. And a lot of us, we fall into that comparison trap and it's really hard for us to have hope in that place. And Thomas here is frankly just being uh, honest with his emotions. He's not experiencing God in the same way that his friends are experiencing God. And maybe you feel that way right now. Maybe you feel uh, like me and like many of us. Um, I don't think I'm experiencing God in the way that that person is or, um, or that person is. Thomas here, rather than just fake it, he's honest. He, he admits that he's stuck. And maybe for some of us right now, the most honest thing you can do is admit that you feel stuck. And that leads us to the next movement in the text. The fourth thing here is that after a, a week of waiting, Jesus appears to Thomas. And, and I just want to say three things about this um, Jesus appearing. Because if we're not careful, we'll just sort of like happily ever after it and think, oh, look, Thomas, everything worked out great for him. There are three things here. Number one, it takes a week. A week. Thomas has to sit in that place of feeling alone, feeling out of step, feeling unsure, feeling like he didn't get something his friends got for a week. God does not resolve this tension in a hurry because I believe that when we sit in liminal spaces, and we've been using that phrase a lot, things happen inside of us. Um, the Lord is working in our waiting, as one of the songs that we sing here at Trinity tells us. God sometimes uses the crucible of waiting to turn up the temperature in our lives and reveal things to us and in us. So Jesus doesn't rush to resolve the pressure. And I just want to say this to you. Jesus loves you, but he will not resolve the pressure that builds in your life or mine prematurely. Thomas waits. And when he waits, as he waits, pressure builds. 
but Thomas remains in the house. He doesn't allow the pressure to isolate him. He doesn't remove himself from the fellowship of his friends. He actually hangs in there with them, even though he feels weird. And some of you today, the best thing you can do in this season of disorientation is simply not run away and give up, not check out and opt out. Thomas doesn't opt out, even though he feels probably like he would like to. I mean, he's got friends that are rejoicing and then Thomas is sitting there going, yeah, I just wish I had had what you had, but I'm not running away. And I think in this sense, doubting Thomas, who gets a terrible reputation, he has something to teach you about what you do when you are feeling out of step and out of sync and like you are missing out on something in your faith. He sticks in there. And the third thing that happens is that Jesus ultimately does come and show himself to Thomas. And what does he do first? He shows him the wounds in his body. I believe that there's something really important here, uh, something really compelling, actually, that Jesus, when he encounters Thomas, he shows him the price that he paid in his own body, the marks of pain that he endured at the cross. And I believe that in this moment, Jesus is showing Thomas and me, when I face my own seasons of doubt, that he has done something for us to give us a place to stand, that he has done something for us to breathe new life into us and bring us back from the darkness. Uh, I've said this a lot over the years at Trinity. I went through a three-year period of doubt in my own life, and I was a pastor when this happened. I went through three years where God didn't make sense to me, things didn't seem clear. And I look at Thomas's story, and I'm able to find my own story there. There was a lot of waiting. I didn't run away. And ultimately, things became clear to me that were not clear. And when they became clear, I saw the cost of the pain of what God did to bring me back from that dark place. And it changed something in my soul. There's a verse in the book of Proverbs that says, He who conquers his own soul is stronger than he who takes a city. And for some of us, what God is looking right now to do is to work with us to conquer our own souls, to engage in a kind of self-defeat that's not masochistic. It's the kind of self-defeat where we surrender and say, God, I'm not going anywhere, even though things don't make sense to me now. For some of us, maybe many of us, that's the most faithful thing that you can say right now. And here's the last movement. Number five, Jesus invites us to believe. Y'all, this is one of the rare moments in the Bible where Jesus looks at Thomas and says, Thomas, uh, believe. And Thomas actually says the truest thing that anybody ever said about Jesus. He calls him God, my Lord and my God. Thomas calls Jesus God. He sees something uh, in a way that is more clear even than what his friends had been able to articulate up till that moment. But after Jesus speaks to Thomas, he turns and he speaks to you and to me. It's one of the rare moments in the Bible where Jesus does this. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus also says that by believing, we will have life in God's name, that there's a kind of quality of life. We're going to do something unusual now, especially for the season of our video church. We're going to pivot to a God story. I want to introduce you to my friend, Kat Gaines. She's a member of our West Side community, and she has a story to share with you. And so let's go ahead and hear that story, and then I'm going to help us finish this time together and pray the Lord's Prayer. But first, let's hear Kat. Recently, my sister and I were cleaning out my mother's apartment. She's an assistant at a special needs home working 12 plus hours a day. We're trying to get her somewhere safer and cheaper. My mother has been an addict since before I was born and my father left a few years after I was born. I was the baby of the family in the years of darkness and destruction, abuse, neglect, poverty, 
hunger, and trauma were all I knew. And as my sister and I cleaned out my mother's apartment yesterday, I found writings that brought an overwhelming grief over me. One in particular dated to something I wrote as a six-year-old. In the sweet, defenseless writing of a child, I wrote, I hate myself because I just do. People think I'm, and then it stopped there. As a kid, my mother would leave for long periods of times, hours and nights without her. I remember on my first day of kindergarten, I took my first drink of beer for breakfast. Food was scarce and we would ask people for help, but it generally would be spent on booze. So the situation got worse because people didn't want to enable her. I understand now, but some days we'd be without power. People really wanted to help, but were confused on how to. Self-hatred and loathing began at a young age. I felt like there was no hope for me. Thankfully, I had sweet family members who made sure that I had a foundation and understanding of the love of Jesus at a young age. Because of them, I was able to grasp my need for him very young. I understood that I could not do this without Jesus very early on. As I sifted through old papers at my mom's, I landed on an evaluation I took at 13 because teachers thought I had ADD. I was failing classes as an eighth grader. I skimmed through this evaluation and my gut turned at what the doctor wrote. She, me, showed a discomfort revealing personal and sensitive information. Her scores reveal that she is clinically significant in feeling depressed, dissatisfied, and hopeless. She's emotionally over-controlled and self-doubting. She underreports emotional distress and shows long-standing feelings of inadequacy and apathy. Then the part that brought me to my knees, thinking about that 13-year-old. The doctor wrote, the results also support a potential diagnosis of dysthymia or a hopeless feeling for at least two years based on low self-esteem and general long-standing feelings of apathy related to school and her future. Fast forward a few years, in high school, I found the best way to avoid general feelings of hopelessness was some mix of God, partying, boys, pills, and being well-liked. The first time I attempted to take my life, I was 15. I couldn't understand why God would put me on earth just to feel like an orphan. But then in college, I was paying my way through technical school when God placed me at the doorsteps of some families. And the more time I spent with these families, the more I felt like as the kids were growing up, I was getting a second chance of growing up too. Their parents loved me and cared for me in a new way. A few of the families began to support me through school and counseling, among other things. I was able to graduate college last May and have achievements I wouldn't have accomplished without them. They let me live with them, they showed up for me, they fed me, which was a plus. And God used these families to reach back into my places of orphanness and breathe hope and life back into them. And through days spent together or fights reconciled or meals shared, God was healing painful memories of my childhood. God healed me of the hopelessness I had towards the future. Going to Trinity these last few years allowed me to look at my own awful trauma, grieve deeply, while also being surrounded by community that pointed me to the truth when I felt lost. I'm 25 now. I have an amazing job that brings me joy every single day. Sometimes my boss even compliments me. I have God-loving friends who show up. While I experience the occasional grief over my childhood or anxiety about the future, I rejoice in knowing that Jesus was surrounding me and raising to life a new creation in me, even in my darkest days. I'm new. I would listen to Chris time after time, who wasn't afraid to talk about grief, depression, or orphanness. And through the years of listening to this godly, fatherly voice, God reminded me of the hope that was there the whole time. I started attending and eventually volunteering three years ago. God gave me something in Trinity and in my community that I never thought was meant for me, a family.
Y'all, that is life. Being brought back from a place of darkness to a place of life is not unlike what Thomas experienced. And I believe the faithfulness of God in Kat's story is a powerful example for you and me. See, belief in God's name is an unshakable conviction that God is for us, that we belong in the family of God, that he is with us. And y'all, that is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the result of the breath of God breathing life into our bones, into those places that feel dead and lost. So I just want to say to you today, wherever it is that you feel you need life, ask for the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a prayer I'm praying each and every single day. Holy Spirit, breathe your life into my life, especially where I feel like I'm lacking it. I want to encourage you at the end here that if you have uh, experienced God at work in your life in big ways or in some small ways, God even working in the minutia of your life, we would encourage you to email a written transcript of that story at story at atltrinity.org. We would love to hear it and occasionally be able to share some of those stories just like Kat did. Kat, thank you for sharing and encouraging us as the family of God. It is a gift to belong. If you are able, let's stand together. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer before we turn you loose into your day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.